Well, good morning, everyone. How many of you are enjoying some cooler weather? How many of you are looking forward to hotter weather this week? Ah, yes. The lovely month of September, 51 day, 90 the next, but it's all right. Uh, before we start this morning, um, I feel that I need to uh, ask forgiveness and, and offer an apology uh, to our sound booth guys. Um, last week, as many of you noticed, uh, there were some technical difficulties. And the technical difficulties had nothing to do with our sound booth guys who are wonderful professionals who know what they're doing. Uh, rather, it was uh, your pastor with his sausage fingers uh, who was pressing buttons on the remote <laughs> as he was preaching and making the slides go crazy. Um, it was, in fact, the sound booth guys, Chris and Dave, who got me back to where I was supposed to be twice. Um, <laughs> During that's and, and, and I say I say this because first of all, uh, anything that happens technically uh, that, that you might think is wrong with uh, a, a church service, it's automatically the booth guys, right? I know some of you and I did myself. You kind of just did one of these. <laughs> right. Even I did. I'm like, what's going on? Somebody fall asleep. What is? <laughs> There are buttons on this remote. Some of them do things I don't want them to do. So I'm going to do my best to not touch them today. But I hope that uh, Chris, Dave, I hope that you will forgive me. Um, I hope that you will forgive us for our uh, false assumptions about tech. And uh, I hope that you understand how wonderfully important uh, you are uh, to our services every week. For those of you who don't know, I mean, it's not easy uh, being back there in the booth and making sure everything's running. They're on, they're on all kinds of different things with the music and with the, the, the microphones and everything else. And uh, they could use your help too. Uh, so if you're interested maybe in helping out in the sound booth, please talk to Dave or Chris, uh, they would love to maybe, I don't know, take a Sunday off and just kind of sit and, and be with their families and watch the service. But thank you guys for everything that you do. And I think they deserve a little bit of appreciation. In 2006, uh, a movie was released by Pixar Animation. It was called Cars. Anybody recognize this guy? How many of you have seen the movie Cars? A couple of you have not seen it, of course. Uh, most of us have seen it. We know the basic story. This hotshot race car named Lightning McQueen. He's on his way to California for a big race, and he feels, you know, he's, he's important, and he's famous, and, and he runs into a little bit of trouble on his way to California. Um, accidentally, uh, somehow, uh, his, his truck unloads him off of the highway, and he kind of finds his way to this little town called Radiator Springs, and he does quite a bit of damage to Radiator Springs, tears up their road and crashes into things. And the next morning, this, uh, this old judge and the doctor of the town, uh, cranky old Doc Hudson, 
Uh, he sentences McQueen to make repairs to the town before he can leave for his big race. And of course, McQueen is not at all happy about this. And he does a shoddy job and he just doesn't do the work right. And Doc tells me he has to fix it. And they get into this argument. Doc says, OK, I got a deal for you. Let's race. Now, look at this guy. <laughs> And look at this guy. <laughs> Doc Hudson says, let's race. One lap around our old track, this old dirt track outside of Radiator Spring. One, one lap, and if you win, you can leave, and I'll fix the road myself. And if I win, you have to stay, and you have to fix the road the right way. Well, of course, this guy doesn't know how to race on dirt. This guy does, and he beats Lightning McQueen very, very badly. And so Lightning has to stay in town. He has to fix everything. And later in the movie, Doc McQueen watches, uh, or Doc Hudson watches McQueen practice on the track, trying to make this turn that he keeps missing and skidding out on. And Doc gives him some advice. Anybody remember the advice that Doc Hudson gives? He says, if you find yourself going hard enough left, you'll find yourself turning right. And of course, McQueen gets all up in his face. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Sure, turn right to go left. Sure, that makes perfect sense in opposite world. <laughs> Except that when he tries it, it works. On this dirt track, when he turns left, he starts going right, and he can figure out how to compensate for the movement of the car. It's called drifting. Some of you know what drifting is if you've seen the Fast and the Furious movies. So Lightning McQueen tries out this go right to turn left, and it works. And last week, we began a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And the first part of this series is called Blessed, the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, we learned last week, are the blessings that Jesus pronounces at the very beginning of this Sermon on the Mount that he gives, which we find in the, uh, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. Almost 10% of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Beatitudes, these blessings of Jesus, and, and really in the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, and really in all of Scripture, Jesus is telling us turn right to go left. He's telling us about opposite world. He's talking about the upside down kingdom of God where things are not the way they ought to be to our human brains. Almost everything in the kingdom of God is counterintuitive to what we think is right, what we think we ought to do. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Up is down. Left is right. Forwards is backwards. God's kingdom does not make sense to human beings. Now, last week we read the Beatitudes, and we're going to read those again today, starting in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute you, or who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and false and accuse you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in, is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And today I want to visit this first blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, before I, before I go on talking about the blessings themselves, let me tell you a little bit about Beatitudes. Uh, because this is not the only place where we find Beatitudes uh, in, in literature, not necessarily in the Bible. But these Beatitudes, Jesus puts at the beginning of his sermon on purpose. There is a purpose for him telling us these things first. And it's crucial that we gain an understanding of what the blessings mean and what this particular blessing, blessed are the poor in spirit, means. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And why is that a criteria? Why is that a requirement for the kingdom of heaven? Now, the word that uh, Jesus uses here for the word blessed, it, it comes from the Greek word mak makarios. Hard word to pronounce, right? Makarios. Makarios means blessed, which is what we see in the scripture. But it also means happy. It means fortunate. It means privileged. So makarios, blessed, is first found in the written form, in written literature, about 460 years before Jesus speaks it on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's uh, written down by this Greek poet named Pindar. And in Greek poetry and in literature, makarios was the word used for beatitudes, and the beatitudes were these blessings that people would give to one another. But originally they weren't written about humans. They were written about the Greek gods. This is where this word came from. And it meant the transcendent happiness of a life beyond care, labor, and death, which the Greeks thought described the gods. And later, uh, when poets would use this word uh, to describe men, it became this philosophical term for inner happiness. And we all know that kind of idea today, inner happiness, find your inner happiness. How many of you have heard that statement before? Find your inner happiness, find your makarios. So very often makarios is used to contrast an idea of painful reality. And many of us experience painful reality. Some of us a lot more than others, and some of us even today are experiencing painful reality. But if you experience makarios, or if someone blesses you with makarios, 
They're, they're wishing you good fortune. They're wishing that you would be rich. They're wishing that you would be free of trouble. They're wishing that your reality would be painless. A really nice thought, isn't it? I want your life to be good. I want your life to uh, make sense to you. I want you to have this inner happiness. Be rich, be famous, be whatever you want to be. Whatever's going to make you happy. Now, of course, if you were poor or unlike, uh, unlucky, or your life was full of tribulation, you were not considered blessed. Your reality remained painful. And if we keep this in mind, this kind of idea of what Makarios originally meant and what it later meant as it was written about humans, the first blessing of Jesus sounds very, very strange to our ears. Blessed, fortunate, privileged are the poor in spirit. Happy, even, are the poor in spirit. Turn right to go left. Doesn't make sense. Why, of all the people on earth, would the poor in spirit be the ones that are given the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Why do they get to go in? We're living here on earth. We're supposed to be we're supposed to be privileged. We're supposed to seek for fame or fortune. Happiness doesn't make sense. But what does poor in spirit really mean? To get a little bit of an idea, we might look at Psalm 51. King David wrote Psalm 51 very soon after the prophet Nathan came to him looked at him and told him that God knew that David had sinned. David sinned with the wife of another man. Her name was Bathsheba. David saw her. David wanted her. David took her. And then David sent her away. A little bit later, Bathsheba comes back and says, I am with child. Oh, and David, it's yours. And David brings the husband back very quickly from this battle, this huge war that's been, that's been raging on. And he says, go down, spend the night with your wife. Relax a little bit. Find some inner happiness. Find some outer happiness for that matter. But Uriah says, no, I can't do that. I've got friends, I've got comrades that are sleeping out under the stars on the rocky ground. They don't get to come home and be with their families. I can't, in good conscience, go and spend the night with my wife. Can't do it. And he sleeps outside of his house. This does not work well for David, does it? So David says, all right. Go back to the battle. And he writes this letter. And he seals it. And he gives it to Uriah. He says, give this to the commander. And Uriah trots on back and gives the letter. Goes back to his guys. Commander opens the letter. And in the letter, David has commanded that Uriah 
be put in a place in the battle where it is almost certain he will die. And he does. David has committed adultery. David has committed murder. All in the name of inner happiness. And David writes this psalm. Psalm goes like this. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, I'm going too far, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold your delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Now, many of us have read this psalm of repentance. Many of us have heard this psalm of repentance talked about and preached and taught. And, and, and many of us now, because we've been taught, know why David wrote it. He wrote it in sorrow. He wrote it in repentance. He wrote it in confession. But here's something we don't think about very often. Psalms were meant to be sung in public. When David wrote this psalm and he delivered it to the priest, he was making a public confession of his own sins. Now, he didn't necessarily mention the exact sins, although he does mention blood guiltiness. Blood guiltiness back in that time meant that you had either really seriously harmed or killed somebody. But he doesn't go into all of the particulars, but he makes a public confession that he has sinned against God, that he has done evil in the sight of God. And then he makes a public confession that the only way, the only way for his sins to be forgiven 
was through God's grace and mercy. Only God can blot out my iniquities. Only God can renew my spirit and create a clean heart out of the filth of sin that I have committed. David's psalm is a song of one who is poor in spirit. Now Jesus tells another story about another man who has sinned against God. This story is in Luke chapter 18. We start in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now you've heard me say this before, if you've been here any amount of time, tax collectors were like the lowest of the low. They were the sinners of Israel, tax collectors. We don't like them very much more now, but back then, tax collectors were the lowest of the low. But we read on the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Notice how he puts tax collector last. Extortioners, unjust adulterers, and him, he's the worst. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Mm-hmm. Oh, heavenly Father, dost thou not see how righteous I am? I prayeth in the King Jameseth. Pharisee was a little full of himself, wasn't he? And he believed that he was righteous. He believed he was going to inherit the kingdom of God. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. And Jesus goes on, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector stands far off. He didn't even seem to believe that he belonged there in the temple of God. He didn't feel that he deserved even to come into the presence of God with anything so apparently great was his sin. Tax collector wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven. This man found himself completely unworthy to even look into God's face. 
Have you ever sinned against someone? And you come face to face with them. And you can't even look them in the eye. You can't even look at their face. You turn away. You avert your eyes. That's what this man was feeling toward God. He understood that even by lifting his eyes, not even his head, just lifting his eyes to look to heaven, that he would be deserving of God's wrath. He didn't feel like he belonged there. He didn't feel like he had anything that he could say to God for the sins that he had committed. And the tax collector beat upon his chest. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, a person would beat on his chest to show sadness, guilt, remorse. And they were doing it in an obviously public way. If you watched somebody as you were walking down the street and their eyes were like this and they were doing this, what would you think? This tax collector was making it no secret that he knew he was guilty. Now, he wasn't standing there beating his chest to be seen by other people. He was standing a long way off. He didn't want people to see him, but he didn't care if they did. He was guilty. He was remorseful. And it was the only way that he knew how to give God a physical sign that he knew he was guilty. The tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man was standing a far way off, eyes down, beating his chest, praying to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me mercy. Don't punish me the way I deserve for the things I know I have done. Give me another chance. Let me try again. man realized that God had every right to strike him down right there and right then. He realized that his sin was so great that God's wrath was totally justified. But most of all, and this is what I'm thankful for, and Jesus tells this story. 
most of all, this man had an understanding that God was merciful. He understood that regardless of what he had done, God could make it so that it had never happened. God could wash him whiter than snow. God could create in him a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within him. God could wipe the sleep clean of the blame and the guilt. Jesus tells his listeners that this man this man, utterly and completely poor in spirit, went down to his house justified. Justified is another word for forgiven. He tells us that only with this attitude toward our sin, only this attitude of utter sorrow and of utter guilt and of utter reliance on God's mercy, his undeserved mercy, will we ever be worthy of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit means poverty of spirit. It means we have nothing in us to give. We have nothing in us that deserves God's grace and God's mercy. And we know it. We rely completely, 100% on God's grace and mercy to forgive us. Jesus tells us there is absolutely nothing that we can ever hope to do or say to pay our sin debt to God. We are bankrupt. We are spiritually broke. You got nothing. You got not one red cent in your spirit that makes you deserving of forgiveness. But thanks be to God, we can come to him. As David says, with a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. We can beat our chests. And we can say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus puts the Beatitudes in a particular order on purpose. He starts with blessed are the poor in spirit simply because without understanding our poverty of spirit, we can't hope to do 
anything else that he says in the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount, in the whole rest of all of the rest of his teaching. We can't do it. We have to come to God poor in spirit first. Otherwise, we can't truly be mournful. We can't truly be meek. We can't hunger and thirst for righteousness because we don't know where righteousness would come from. We certainly can't be merciful ourselves if we don't understand the mercy that God shows us in forgiving our sins. Jesus later in the Sermon on the Mount says, forgive others their sins as God forgives you your sins. I want to tell you something right now. You can believe it or you cannot believe it, but there is nobody who has sinned against you worse than people have sinned against God. It might feel like it. I might feel wronged. But there is nobody that is worthy of God's mercy and grace. And when we see that in ourselves, maybe, maybe we can start to practice that mercy toward other people, toward people who have wronged us, to people who have wronged our families, to people who have wronged our friends, Maybe we can start to just show the tiniest little glimpse of mercy to them. We certainly can't be pure in heart if we are not poor in spirit. Without poverty of spirit, we can't understand God's kingdom, let alone live in it. We'll never be able to turn right to go left. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Father, mostly we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that even though we have nothing to offer you, we have nothing to give you that would make us deserving even of the slightest ounce of your mercy that you give us all of your mercy anyway. Father, there are some of us that forget that we could do nothing to earn your grace. Father, remind us Create in us a new heart and renew a right spirit within us. Help us to remember what you have done for us in forgiving our sins. Help us to forgive the sins of others with just the smallest amount of your mercy. Father, I pray for those who are sitting here, those who are watching or listening, are hurt 
They're broken. Somebody has hurt them. Or they have hurt somebody else. Father, show mercy. And allow us to show mercy in return. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. If you need freedom or saving, in your minds cross out the if. You need freedom. You need saving. You need God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Pray this week as you go out, you will understand how bereft of spirit, how poor of spirit we all are. And I pray that you will rely on the mercy of God for forgiveness. God bless you this week.